Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversation with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sherryanne Anker for Bloomberg News, Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Each episode, we will explore the diversity and vibrancy of Asia through discussions with important Asia-focused government and business leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. Today, we are pleased to be joined by an esteemed diplomat, leader, advocate for women in national security, and friend, Ambassador Nina Hachigian. Nina serves as Deputy Mayor for International Affairs for the City of Los Angeles. And before that, she was the second U.S. Ambassador to ASEAN, or Association for Southeast Asian Nations, from 2014 to 2017. Throughout her career, Nina has supported women within government and beyond. As ambassador to ASEAN, Nina helped to create the U.S. ASEAN Women's Leadership Academy, growing its youth program to over 100,000 members. She also co-founded Leadership Council for Women in National Security and Women Ambassadors Serving America, two organizations that advocate for women's inclusion and leadership in U.S. foreign policy. Nina, thank you very much for joining us. It's terrific to have you here. And I have to say, I'm envious. You're in California, my home state. But let's start here with your current role. You wrote an article recently about the role that U.S. cities and states play in global affairs and U.S. foreign policy. You laid out the case for what's happening now and why it's so important and offered a few ideas on where we should go. So can you first give our listeners a sense of what it means for the city of Los Angeles to have engagements around the world, the kinds of relationships, the objectives you have, the mission of the position you're in, which I understand is new, created as you assumed the job, and how we should think about what the city of Los Angeles views as its priorities abroad. Thank you. Thanks for that great question. And thanks for having me. I'm very uh, honored to be here with you in this uh, not actually so sunny morning in Los Angeles, but still still lovely. Yes. Yeah, so Mayor Garcetti created my role about three years ago, a little over three years ago. And uh, I'm constantly wondering who, like, how, you know, who did my work before uh, this role existed? Because there's, there's a lot of it. So first, uh, we have we think of um, our work in it having about four different goals. So first is to bring jobs to Angelinos and economic opportunity based on our international relationships. So that's pretty straightforward, right? That's encouraging foreign direct investment. It's supporting our exporters. We're also going to be hosting the 2028 Games, the Olympic and Paralympic Games. That will also create economic opportunity and jobs for our local residents. Residents and we, we in my office work on, on that account. That's number one. Second, we look to bring global skills to young Angelinos. So we started a program to send community college students overseas on their very first trips. About 30% had never been on an airplane before, a little over 30%. And these are first-generation Americans, first generation to go to college, 90 
5% people of color. And so anyone who's traveled knows that it can be a very eye-opening experience. And we documented that statistically that it really was for these students and they felt more self-confident afterwards and thought of their careers slightly differently. Um, and we also have done work with connecting consulates. So we have about 100 consulates here in Los Angeles. I'm told it's the third largest diplomatic community in your third largest consular corps in the world to high schools and having them do joint activities. So that's second. Third is we seek to help solve global problems that affect Angelinos. So COVID was a big one where we were constantly communicating to cities around the world. We were really having to do a lot of that COVID work on our own. Our federal government wasn't really giving us a lot of leadership at that time, but we looked to other cities for their lessons learned. And uh, Mayor Garcetti convened about 50 mayors uh, on that first call and had mm. subsequent calls as well, which all made, I think, the mayors feel um, very much in solidarity with each other. These are mayors from all parts of the, of the planet. And also the, those who hadn't yet encountered COVID, because this was mm-hmm. fairly early on in the mm-hmm. pandemic, were on alert that they had to be ready and to do way more than they thought they might have to do you know, early on. In that network, it was actually formed for uh, climate uh, activism. So it's the C40 Cities Network. Mm-hmm. So it's the, all the mega emitters uh, around the world who are joined in being very aggressive on reducing their climate emissions. So uh, uh, the mayor just uh, announced a couple of weeks ago that LA is going to have zero carbon energy, uh, 100% renewable energy by 2035, for example. And there are other, you know, all, all the cities in this network are much more aggressive than, than nation states have been. So those are two examples of these global challenges. A third is gender equity. So it's true that I've started a few other gender equity <laughs> institutions. And there's a there's a, another one now uh, called Change, which is the city hub um, and network for gender equity. And it's changecities.org or citieschange.org, pardon me. And what, what I noticed being uh, in this job is that mayors have a lot of power over the lives of women in terms of how, uh, in terms of their job opportunities, in terms of the safety of transportation networks, of street lighting, of how people respond, how authorities respond to domestic violence in a in the helpful way or a less helpful way, uh, et cetera. And so we formed this network. There are now six cities who are the founding members, London, Tokyo, Barcelona, Freetown, Sierra Leone, and Mexico City. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, that's very exciting projects, and many of them that you have to tackle in that role. You are right to ask who did all of that before you came along, right? So, give us a bit of your take of how all of those global challenges that you're tackling right now, how that really connects cities with the world and foreign policy more broadly, because I know that you wrote about this in uh, Foreign Policy Magazine. Yeah. Um, so the fourth function that we have that we that I didn't mention is uh, is relationships. So that's relationships to our local consular corps. Uh, it's relationships to national governments. It's relationships to foreign enterprises and foreign um, NGOs and non- nonprofit organizations. So we are doing international work every day. We are, you know, talking to our counterparts in other countries and sometimes with foreign ministries, you know, all all the time. And what I uh, suggested in that article is that there isn't really a 
clear channels for cities, U.S. cities, to interface with the State Department and others whose job it is to do foreign policy, right? So, and that there's a lot more we could do if we had that clear connection and that clear interface. Many other countries do have that. I know Vietnam, for example, I worked with uh, Ambassador Long, who's now their um, ambassador to the UK. His job was to work with his subnational governments, um, but we don't have a similar thing in the in the Department of State. It, there was an office like that under Secretary Clinton, um, but there it nothing happened during President Trump. And so mm-hmm. far, I, I'm, I have a feeling the Biden administration will stand up something like this because they're they've been generally very good with working with cities and states, but they haven't so far. So, for example, if I'm you know if I'm a city you know. Most most people in my job don't have my professional experience, right? They are they are often people who come from different communities. They might even have, you know, risen up through the ranks in city government. So they may not know, you know, whether this particular country is, you know, a good one to work with, or if they should be concerned about uh, anything that this, you know, that this country is offering or suggesting. Similarly, we we were really the I felt at the time, the holders of American values, um, of diversity, of inclusion, of the importance of international cooperation during the during the Trump administration, when our counterparts were hearing all kinds of other other messages from the White House. So we, for example, stood up this organization called Mexla, Mexico, Los Angeles, and we worked with the Mexican foreign ministry uh, on that. And it's to connect citizens in both of our places to um, to create even stronger even stronger ties. Um, but that was an example where where we were reaching out to to what we thought what we know is a really important partner for Los Angeles at a time when the national relationship was not going particularly well. But if, for example, the Biden administration wanted to have stronger ties with any certain country. They could begin with subnational governments, and those people-to-people ties are really important. They are they are really a ballast in a relationship when you know things may be going great or not so great at the national level. I will say it's a huge breath of fresh air to have the Biden administration in office, and now I find that I am trying to because we as a city agree with their foreign policy approach. We are more thinking now in terms of like, how can we further the agenda? How can we help further the agenda on climate, for example, which is a really important priority um, or on democracy, another really important priority for them. Can I ask you, Nina? So just on, on that point that you've mentioned a couple of times, climate as an, an alignment in an area of opportunity here, both in terms of one of the four ways you talk about the role that Los Angeles plays on the global stage, and then kind of in this particular instance, as we see it elevated at the federal level with the Biden administration. And what does that mean practically for a city? I can think of two ways to give you an example. One is in policy shaping in the in the engagements, you know, among countries, for example, in, in summits where there are gatherings, you know, there could be, you could envision leaders from major metropolitan areas. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, the major emitter cities. So that's that's one area. A second would be more on the industry side. And that actually comes to a, another priority you laid out in terms of bringing jobs and collaboration, right? In clean tech, I've heard you talk about another fora. 
Give us a sense of what that might mean practically here for this particular topic, given its importance for all of us and, and how it translates for the city and how you see that. Yeah, sure. So depending on the, the country, mayors can have a lot of autonomous power over um, their carbon emissions. So transportation electrification would be one example that most cities control. In our case, we own our own utility, and that can be true of some cities too. We own our own port, which is a source of emissions, which is another example. We write building codes uh, at a local level, which is another example. We can put in charging infrastructure or not for, for private cars. That's another example. Just building out public transportation in general, which we're doing in LA to a very massive degree. Um, we're building 15 new rail lines uh, within the city. So that's another another example. So and then waste and how we how we deal with waste. Uh, and then in our case, water and the degree to which we recycle water. So in all those ways, we have direct control over carbon emissions. And globally, I think the percentage is something like 75% of carbon emissions come from cities. So there are a couple of ways in which we can affect change at a global level. First of all, we can just do our local work and do it well. um, And that's going to affect emissions globally. Um, Second is we can share, which we do all the time, our learnings and learn from other cities about how they how they put in their bike lane or which charging infrastructure system worked well for them. We can also pool our market, our buying power with other localities to send a signal to the market. And we've done that on electric buses within the United States. There's a consortium of a whole bunch of local governments that together can place a large order for electric buses to send that market signal. We also, as you mentioned, nurture innovation within our cities. So uh, LACI, which is uh, Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, is the largest one, I'm told, in the world that works exclusively on green tech. So that's a public-private collaboration that we have um, in Los Angeles. So those are some of the examples. And then I just think in terms of the level of ambition, it's just higher in cities right now. And so in terms of inspiring the globe to act more, I think there's really a role for cities. And Mayor Garcetti's intention is to bring a thousand cities to Glasgow, at least, um, all of whom have pledged to be net zero by 2050 and probably even more importantly, have their contribution or half of their fair share of contributions for for 50% uh, by 2030. Um, because it's that short-term goal, and that's only you know nine years from now, that is probably going to put us on the right path. Twenty fifty is way out there, and and you know you, you need to make really solid plans for twenty thirty. So that's an example where we hope to at COP just show what can be done and show that it is being done, uh, and inspire others to to do the same. What global partnerships? with other cities that LA have that can work on not only the climate initiative, but also perhaps other global challenges like COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, we really partner with a lot of cities. I, I'll give you some of the ones that we seem to partner with really regularly, and that would be Mexico City, Tokyo, Jakarta, London, Paris, Freetown, and Sierra Leone, Accra, Bogota. And so these are these are cities of Buenos Aires who we have, you know, more than one engagement with, I would say. But then there are a lot of other cities that we 
that we also work with pretty regularly. We have sister cities, which um, we have 27 of them or so, which are really kind of a people to people, uh, tend to be a people to people kind of connection. Um, and so of the cities I mentioned, only like one or two are actual like sister cities. Right. As another one, we celebrated a big anniversary last, last year. But then there are others where we have more policy interactions. So we really work, you know, Copenhagen is another one where we're doing kind of clean tech uh, conversations and the Netherlands uh, as a country. Um, so are there any case examples between the work that you're doing with all of those cities that perhaps you think could actually succeed on a national level if you broaden it out, if you take it more global as well? That's a good question. Um I'm trying to think of like a, of a really, well, here's one where it was, it was more of a kind of an inspirational chain where Mexico city had an earthquake early warning system. This is not on climate, but it's just an example of technical mm. sharing long before we did. And then we partnered with the folks who deal with earthquakes for the United States to do a pilot in Los Angeles. And then we released that in Los Angeles and then California adopted it. And now just, I think last week, all the Western states of the United States have adopted it. And it's just this, this alert that you get maybe a couple seconds before an earthquake. So you can duck under your desk or your or a table. So that's an example. And there's many others where, um, as Mayor Garcetti likes to say, uh, good mayors borrow and great mayors steal. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I actually have one more example where Seoul, Seoul was on one of these COVID phone calls early on, and they had already implemented drive-through testing when that was right. just not something that anybody knew about in the U.S., and, uh, and inspired and worked with Seattle in order to have it happen in Seattle. And also we did a site here in Los Angeles as well. So that's, you know, a practical example. And then we talked with a lot of cities just bilaterally on their plans for reopening and how they were tiering it and how, what their criteria they were using. And those were very helpful as we set up our own reopening plans. You talked about, Nina, on COVID early on, the convening of cities at a time when the outlook in Los Angeles was quite dark as you faced the crisis. And it served as a cautionary experience for some cities. You, as you mentioned just now, you tried to exchange best practices and innovative ideas. I'm curious, as we've watched the overall situation in the United States recently start to stabilize and, and improve in some ways, here we, we're seeing other parts of the world go in the opposite direction, and particularly for the tragedy um, unfolding in India and a few other places around the world. Are you seeing a shift in how those engagements are occurring now? The assistance, what are the conversations like now, given the outlook where you are versus where some of some other major metropolitan areas uh, may be far more in a, in a, a crisis mode? Yeah, thank you. Um, the mayor, Mayor Garcetti, reached out to his counterpart in Mumbai and had a conversation um, about a, you know, a week or so ago to offer assistance and any you know technical help they may need. And we're so we're still working on that uh, to see if there is any way that we can be helpful. You know, I think we've learned a lot about COVID and how important it is to follow the data, which is luckily something that our city did 
early on because our mayor is a you know data obsessed in general, um, which is a really good way to be when you are um, dealing with COVID. But we measure everything in the in in our city, like the amount of minutes you're on a phone call, the how how fast it takes to, for a pothole to be filled. Like you know, we measure we measure all of it, and so I think that some of those general learnings are available to, you know, uh, others who are going through it now. And I mean, to me, you know, I think you just, you have to have politicians in place who are willing to make some tough calls because it's, it's really not easy. Like I remember when we, when we shut down our city really early on, it was like March um, 19th or something like that. It was, it was before California had shut down before any, you know, anywhere else. And you know, politically, that's just really challenging, right? Because you know you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna just the impact of that is gonna hurt a lot of people, and it and it absolutely did in our city. I mean, the economic crisis it generated, we're, we're climbing out of, and really, if not for the stimulus packages, I think we would be in a, a real world of hurt. I have a lot of hope for where we are now because we are, you know, we are doing a lot of assisting of our most vulnerable populations. But anyway, I do think it's, you can't really minimize the importance of political bravery in in the face of this terrible disease. Let me bring up your work in ASEAN nations, because of course we touched on India, but Southeast Asia has been suffering a lot. And we have seen cases in, say, Laos, month-to-month basis, a 22,000 increase, Thailand, 1,000% increase. It's really been devastating for nations there, especially, as you mentioned, stimulus um, in advanced economies is not the same in, in developing nations that don't really have the fiscal leeway or the monetary policy available to them. First of all, just give us your assessment of what you make of what's happening in Southeast Asia. You've traveled to all of these nations. What's happening there? Well, uh, you know, I think um, a rough patch for for many of them. I'd say from what I know, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't know in detail how the COVID situation is going in each one of them. I've been very impressed with Vietnam, which for a long time was doing exceptionally well. We would have these phone calls, you know, we did a virtual trade mission with Vietnam where, you know, we would all be like in our little Zoom boxes and, uh, and you know, the people in Vietnam were just sitting together in a conference room <laughs> because they could, because uh, there was only like, you know, a hundred cases in the country or something ridiculous. So I would, I, I guess in terms of what I would suggest is to, is to learn from the countries right around there that were, you know, that did, did quite well and, and to learn hopefully from us too. And the mayor has been a very vocal advocate for vaccine distribution. I think we will hopefully be at a place very soon in the United States where we will have enough for our own population. We'll be able to help export quite a bit and and also work out something through the WTO with intellectual property that will allow you know those countries to manufacture the vaccine as well. I know I've heard the CEO of Moderna, he happens to be Armenian American like I am, so I pay more attention to what, to what he says uh, just for that, you know, ethnic affiliation but also said he could be very flexible about the about the IP rights. So I encourage, you know, engagement um, from the Biden administration. I know we'll I know we'll see that, and I and I expect that we'll see a lot of help on vaccines, hopefully fairly soon. I'm curious on this part of the world, Nina, just to pause for a minute. I mean, you've mentioned Vietnam a couple times. I know I've I've heard you talk about you know issues like, for example 
how you foster travel to LA nonstop flights. Vietnam is one where we don't have a nonstop flight. And I think, you know, you could see LA being an obvious candidate for that. And to bring your background as well to the job you have now is you, you look around the region, I would assume Vietnam, you've mentioned Jakarta, Indonesia, India, in terms of growth relationships, when it comes to trade, when it comes to economic partnerships that can bring jobs to LA, but also, you know, in a two-way street are beneficial the, the other way around. How do you see the landscape? Where, where is the growth? Where are the, where's the emphasis? You know, where do we, where should we expect to see larger relationships two, three, four years from now? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think you've hit on, on a few of them, you know, Japan and Korea, we have very long-standing, mm-hmm. stable, strong economic relationships. And they all, you know, they always have potential to grow, but we have a really significant pre-existing base. Japan is the largest creator of jobs still in um, LA City. I think the UK and Japan flipped when you talk about LA City versus LA County, um, but those are the two biggest ones. I think uh, the Philippines has a large population here in Los Angeles, so I think there's potential growth there too. Thailand as well, large, uh, you know, very large population here in Los Angeles. I mean, I think there's, you know, potential growth everywhere. Um, and the question is, to what degree are governments here and there willing to take advantage of it and push it? And, you know, Vietnam is one, because we have a huge population here, and there is no nonstop flight, as you've said, I've been focused on that. It's not something I ever thought about as a diplomat. Mm-hmm. But the existence of a nonstop flight is huge for a relationship. And it's also a huge economic generator. Like every nonstop flight is itself a, a big economic boon to both countries. Um, and I've heard that the LA, LA Vietnam corridor is the largest unserved nonstop market in the world. That mm-hmm. some very large percentage of of our uh, of our flights that go through Hong Kong are actually headed to Vietnam. So we've been focused on that one in particular, but also we've we really want to encourage a, in India uh, LA nonstop, which doesn't yet exist. Um, mm. Our tourism department has an office in in India in Mumbai, throughout China, about four or so offices in China, and so that's you know where they see the market in terms of tourism mm-hmm. um, picking up, uh, for example. So yeah, anyway, I think. I think India as well. I think there's a lot more that we could do. And we just have to, you know, navigate the the landscape of COVID. And, you know, and then in a country like Myanmar, it's just so tragic what's happening there. And we have a lot of, you know, a, a large Burma Burmese community here too, which is, you know, just beside itself with grief and horror uh, as we are at, at, at what is happening. So that's the kind of relationship which I would love to say that we could uh, foster and that would get stronger, but that is absolutely not in the cards right now until they return to their, you know, the elected government, democratically elected government. What do you make of those changes during COVID? Uh, the authoritarian trends in the region that seem to be exacerbated now with the pandemic, but of course, even before that, in the past decade, we have Thailand. We even have one of the most consolidated democracies in Indonesia being criticized for some of those uh, autocratic trends that have come out during the pandemic as well. 
Well, and, and, you know, President Duterte was elected long before COVID. Um, and <laughs> he's not a fan of, of the opposition or of, of media scrutiny either. So, you know, I, yeah, I think it's probably best to look at this in the global context of increasing authoritarianism everywhere. And I don't, you know, I don't feel like I have a complete answer for why that's happening. It's, you know, I have, you know, some conjectures, like, Maybe we all do, but uh, I do think, you know, that it's important to work on inequities within society and among countries that I think at the root of a lot of appeal is easy answers for the economic hardship that many people feel. So it's, you know, going back to what you're asking at the beginning of the role cities play in foreign policy. I mean, one of the things that we do is we grow people right? We grow the, the diplomats, the uh, policymakers, the soldiers, the educators, the innovators of tomorrow. So I've often said that the United States, um, especially if you want to frame our foreign policy in part as a competition with China, we have to maximize the potential of every single person in the United States. So we don't have any time uh, or place for discrimination based on race or religion or who people love, or, you know, where they come from. It's, it's, we have to, you know, do the work of letting everybody uh, live to their full potential if we want to be uh, the economic powerhouse and the influential powerhouse that, that we can be. Nina, you just touched on a topic that I wanted to be sure we raised, which is the competition with China. And, you know, the president has laid out um, this thinking, I think, in pretty direct terms, arguably almost blunt, um, in talking about the dominant driver for the infrastructure plan for the jobs proposal to invest in our country as a result of the outlook with China, not just now, but for years, arguably decades to come. The question I'm interested in exploring is, again, from the perspective of the city of Los Angeles, within this context of a competitive, almost adversarial in some ways, relationship with China, how does that impact the city? How has it impacted the city to date? How might you anticipate implications and consequences for the city if the relationship with China continues along its current trajectory, particularly when it comes to economic, the economic relationship, the technology relationship, investments going both ways here from China into the United States and outbound into China from the United States. You mentioned the city has, I think, four offices for tourism in China. What What is the implication? How, how would we think about that from the current position, the perch you have at the city? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't characterize the relationship overall as adversarial. I think overall, it's very complex. Uh, and we are cooperating uh, on climate. I was really happy to see that that was pretty clear with the, you know, on the Earth Day Summit and with, uh, you know, John Kerry speaking to his, his counterpart, um, Minister Xia in China. So 
I think the, you know, the, the mantra, which I agree with, uh, is, you know, we cooperate when we can, you know, we compete and we confront when we must. And that, you know, again, at the national level, that seems about right. In terms of how it affects Los Angeles, we do have a large Chinese diaspora here. I, I mean, the first thing I thought of when you were asking was, you know, the, then there's been an uptick in hate incidents. And I don't know if that's connected to, you know, the increasing rhetoric uh, with China, but it might be. And that's something that we absolutely have to, it's just unacceptable. And we have to um, respond to it and, and monitor it carefully. Um, our port is greatly affected by trade volumes with China. And that's why I say you can't, you can't really think of the entire frame as adversarial because there's still a lot of trade going on. Uh, we are economically pretty tied together uh, still. Um, and while I think, you know, for critical technologies and, you know, sectors of the economy, I think onshoring makes sense. I don't know that I see that as a, as something that mm-hmm. could ever be, you know, the level that we might have experienced with uh, the Soviet Union, for example, of that decoupling, as they say. And so I, I would hope, um, and this, you know, I think is largely dependent at this point on President Xi, that that the people-to-people ties continue um, and that um, there continues to be exchange students and uh, tourists and collaborations just of, of regular citizens because, you know, China's not going anywhere. There are 1.4 billion people who, you know, the United States doesn't have any qualms with the people it's the it's the government and the leadership that that we do have qualms with is it it an issue though that perhaps the chinese ties with the united states and with the other countries are not necessarily people to people there's always the element of the government right um we recently saw the example of Australia's uh, victoria state tearing up the belt and road initiative because they had a separate deal with china uh, but that is not something that China would ever accept to one of their provinces or cities having relationships outside of the central government. When you liaise with Chinese cities, is there a, a, is there that dynamic, that atmosphere there? Um, our sister city there is Guangzhou, and we've always enjoyed perfectly friendly relations with Guangzhou. And uh, we're going to be working, I think, with Shanghai on a clean, clean port initiative uh, as well. So, um, you know, I, I have no illusions. I'm positive that the foreign ministry is, you know, completely aware of everything that happens between us and Guangzhou, but it has not been, it has been, you know, perfectly fine, perfectly, you know, friendly. And I will say on the investment front, you know, LA was the destination of a lot of Chinese investment, um, for years. And that, uh, switch just got completely turned off, um, by, President Xi, who just in general didn't want so much outbound investment. I don't think it was targeted toward LA or any, anywhere in particular, but was more focused on on investing in their own uh, country. So he could turn off the tap on tourists anytime he wanted to and, and may. I just think that that's, it's short-sighted um, because I do think having the people connections is just a is positive, especially when I think of our Chinese diaspora here wanting to see their family and and all the business ties that they have. You know, that's um, you know those ties are important. Nina, one of the things that's coming up for LA a few years from now is the Olympics. Can you talk just a bit about that, and particularly in the context of you know, there's there's uncertainty for driven by 
a few dynamics right now when it comes to Olympics. Obviously, the COVID situation uh, with the Tokyo Olympics this summer remains impactful. A different set of dynamics as we think about next year with respect to the uh, Olympics in Beijing, uh, more political than the pandemic-driven. Talk to us a little bit about kind of the overall perspective, if you might, uh, from the uh, you know LA's hosting planned hosting of the Olympics in 2028. Yeah, thank you. So we're excited to bring the Olympics back to the United States. Uh, this will be the third time that LA hosts the Olympics, and the first time we're going to host the Paralympics. We have a really different model than than other cities have had. So we are not building anything new for the Olympics. We have all the stadiums and other venues that we need. We will have to build some temporary facilities like a volleyball setup on the beach. And um, we have to change one of our stadiums into a pool or something like that. But, but um, we are not going to have any white elephants that, that get built for the games and then don't, you know, get used after that. So that's pretty exciting. We are, so we in the city are, kind of the stage, if you will. And then there's a separate nonprofit that is called LA 2028 that are putting on the show. And we work with them very cooperatively uh, on, you know, already starting to think about transportation uh, networks and and a few other areas, Um, you know, wanting to have a robust local hire program and a local program for procurement um, for small and medium sized enterprises and local enterprises and historically disadvantaged uh, enterprises. So um, that, you know, hopefully COVID will not be a dynamic by then, but, you know, who knows? We will have to, you know, keep an eye on that. And it's, you know, as you know, in in global affairs, it's hard to predict what's going to be going on uh, at at that point. Um, But we're really looking forward to, you know, reintroducing Los Angeles to the world. It's most people think of us as just Hollywood and beaches, but, you know, we are the biggest manufacturer in the country. We graduate more engineers than any other county, contribute more to GDP than any other county, and just have a very diverse economy that I think uh, an increasingly huge tech sector that most people don't know about. So, we're, we're looking forward to that opportunity. Taking it back sort of to the beginning of this conversation, given how international and diverse Los Angeles is, uh, it may be a little bit difficult to fathom when you're talking about cities and what can cities do in order to have an impact on U.S. foreign policy at the national level. Uh, do you think uh, those silos between domestic policy and foreign policy have been How much more needs to be done to break that and to really bring people to the understanding that they're actually interconnected? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things, I mean, I like a lot of things about the Biden administration. A lot of great friends are serving in it. uh, And I'm so happy for the country that they are, you know, that that the leadership is so experienced and and so dedicated and so patriotic. but one of the things I really like is is that exact idea that we need to break down our foreign and domestic silos, and it's it's I completely believe that. And you know, putting Susan Rice, a former National Security Advisor, in charge of the Domestic Policy Council was, you know, a great idea um, for some of the reasons I've just said. You know, if we are not educating our kids well 
there we're not going to be thriving on the global stage if we don't if our infrastructure is crumbling if we don't you know take advantage of the green economy that's to come uh we're not going to be the powerhouse that we could be if you know if we have entrepreneurs that you know w- want to leave their corporate jobs but are afraid to because of uh healthcare which i've just talked to someone last week that that's the case and i know it's the case more broadly that's a problem um if you know if parents can't go to work because we don't have childcare that's quality childcare then you know we're not going to do well in the next generation so these domestic investments are absolutely critical for our ability to thrive in uh, on the global stage and in foreign policy i, I will say again about early childhood education you know it is hugely important uh, and it is, you know, those investments are correlated with everything good later in life, you know, graduating from high school, uh, you know, successful jobs, uh, graduating from college, just those first few years. And, you know, so I feel like the investments in our people and the investments in our infrastructure and in our cities are, are critical. And then there's the more direct stuff that we've just been talking about where, you know, American cities are starting to be their own engines of, you know, foreign policy. We obviously don't dictate foreign policy and we, we don't write the trade rules and we don't have military of any sort, you know, but we do, we do create relationships and those, you know, any diplomat knows are really, are really important. And I'd say that we are really catching up to our foreign counterparts because in Asia, in Europe, in Africa, Latin America, cities have been much more engaged on the global stage than American cities have been. So this is a new a new frontier. And yes, LA is different, second largest city in the country and home to these gigantic diaspora populations. Um, another one I didn't mention is Armenian, uh, which I am. And so when, you know, President Biden recognized the genocide, it was a huge day for Los Angeles. But even much smaller cities, I think, can benefit and are starting to look to the uh, international relationships that they have in the United States. And, you know, having some um, a place to turn to uh, in the Biden administration would be, I think, terrific. Well, Ambassador Nina, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation personally love to continue it at some point in the future if you will come back and join us uh, we would be delighted and thank you again for truly a fascinating conversation today well i really enjoyed it thank you and also thank you to our listeners please be sure to rate us on the apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcast we also get access to the full video our conversation at the we'll see you next time on TV.